Welcome to Friday in DC Signal to Noise and Jim Wiesmeyer. I think this may be the most stacked topic-wise that we've ever been. Yep, and we're going to get right to it. Let's get right to it. Well, in fact, let's just start off with the, the issue that's probably... Well, there's two issues that probably have generated the most buzz this week. One is the, the China sales. We'll get to that a little bit later on. But the other one has been the announcement by USDA that they are putting a freeze on CFAP. Uh, specifically, right now, it's on CFAP 1 and 2, that $2.3 billion that was left over that was going to be targeted mostly for contract growers. Now they're saying they're still going to accept applications, but they aren't going to cut any checks until they review the program. Um, I, before we get into some of the background on this we learned this week, what do you see on the surface of this announcement, Jim? Well, well I like to call it a pause rather than a freeze. Freeze might be too strong, but you know, they're, you know, you know they both mean the checks aren't going out. Right. This is typically, John, as you well know, what an incoming new administration does on a prior administration uh, for an undesignated number of days or weeks that they review any of the uh, uh, of the last uh, month or so uh, rules and proposals from the prior administration. Now, this fits into that overall category. But as you kind of hinted, uh, incoming Senate Ag uh, Chairwoman Debbie Stabenow on a briefer uh, earlier this week applauded the pausing of those supplemental payouts, which I like to call them. Uh, but she then went into a litany of uh, that it didn't address provisions uh, in the final legislation calling for aid for farm workers, smaller food processors, uh, uh, smaller f uh, yeah, workers, yeah. yeah, workers and others involved in the supply chain. That tells me that we could well see some changes. Now, the other thing I would watch out for, I'm trying to find out. Remember, US, the outgoing USDA announced that up to $2.3 billion would be made available, and around 90% of that was for contract poultry and, and hogs. I've been told that there could be additional funding yet to be announced above that uh, up to $2.3 billion level. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and, and as you point out, that, that rule uh, setting uh, setting forth how that $2.3 billion was going to be spent was promulgated on January 15th, obviously five days before the new administration came in. And again, this is part of a broader um, executive order ordering uh, a pause on um, any executive or any rules that were promulgated uh, just before the inauguration. Um, so, uh, you know, again, initially my thought is, okay, it's, you know, they're looking at everything. They're going to look at it, then move on. But, um, as you noted, Debbie Stabenow in that press call yesterday, she became very animated, um, when asked about this and was very, very stern that there were issues that she put in the CARES Act and the subsequent December uh, coronavirus aid package that, uh, to this point have not been addressed and she was pretty forthright that she wanted to see those addressed um, and it's not clear if that comes out of CFAP 1 and 2 or CFAP 3. Or a combination because right. recall John that uh, Stabenow is, and her staff issued a number of reports on the regional distribution of prior CFAP payments uh, that they thought over overdid it on for the southern states and not enough for the mid-tier states. I mean, mm -hmm. that's a summary. But And then there was also a general accountability office report that she and others 
made sure got out. So uh, yeah, she has a, a really good history of following through. A and now she has a key former staff member at USDA. Right. Uh, so I would watch uh, for that. I think she's going to get some changes, John. Uh, so does you're you're reading the tea leaves. Do we see that allocation for CFAP one and two? That two point three billion. Does that allocation get shifted at this point? Well, remember, I have to know what the total funding is. Uh, if it goes above two point three billion, which I think it could be, then they can they they can you know do some other changes. But it could that none you know notwithstanding, it could be shifted somewhat. Because if you recall, the vast majority of that $2.3 billion you know, was for poultry contract producers. Right. And then what does this tell us for CFAP 3? I mean, obviously some of it, some of the, the, the rules for how it is spent are, are spelled out in the legislation, including, I believe, the per acre payments. But um, the, does this mean that we're going to see a, a, maybe a shifting of the formula for uh, how those per acre payments are made? Well, I, 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 you know, somewhat. I know the $20 per acre for the trigger crops will probably stay because, as you said, that's written in the legislation, and it's been fairly well received by both Republicans and Democrats and farm groups, by the way. There could be some nuance uh, changes in payment rates and, and other aspects that, you know, Stabenow signaled in her, in her presser. Interesting. All right, so we'll keep a, a, yes. a watch on that. Again, though, uh, if you do qualify for that CFAP 1 and 2 supplemental, um, go ahead with the application. They are still taking applications. Yes. Um, so please move forward with that. Um, you know, We'll revisit this, I'm sure, next week. Um, you and I both asked USDA for some some clarity on how long they expect this review to take and if they anticipate any changes well they completely ignored the question about if they anticipate any changes um but but said that just that they are going to move as quickly as possible and they see this as an important program to get moving so yeah they do and recall that on the cfap3 that's the 20 dollars per acre they had indicated that it probably wouldn't be paid out until the la uh, late march or even right. as late as early April. So they've got some time here, John, because they had to write a new software package and and a rule for this one. So I, I don't think they're going to be impacted from a timeline you know, perspective from what we knew before. Maybe the specifics in it will change. Yeah, but obviously just the notion that they're uh, reevaluating CFAP certainly gets people's attention, and that's what's generated a lot of the, the concern this week. Yes, because we're going to learn again. It's just not legislation and who, impl who implements that legislation, yes. and we've had a changing of the guard, so I fully expect some changes. Whether or not they'll be very important remains to be seen. Indeed, indeed. Well, we mentioned that uh, press conference call by uh, Senator Debbie Stabenow, who is uh, returning to the chairmanship of the Senate Ag Committee. Um, and she laid out her priorities. And of course, priority number one is uh, confirmation of Tom Vilsack as USDA secretary, as well as confirmation of his deputy. Um, Vilsack's uh, hearing is uh, Tuesday. Tuesday. We hope, <laughs> we hope, we think that is if the Senate leadership can get uh, their organizing resolution ironed out today. And um, we don't get assumption. bombarded with snow. We're supposed to get snow here 
Sunday and Monday and Tuesday, and you know this town falls apart with a half an inch of snow. Yeah, in, indeed. Um, of course, they can uh, now get some of this done via teleconference, as we've seen, yeah. so yeah. still a possibility. But um, it is a good sign, though, that Debbie Stabenow and uh, John Bozeman, the ranking member, um, were able to work together to get uh, the pieces in place for this confirmation hearing, even without that that organizational resolution in place. So that that is a good sign that we are going to see a continuation of bipartisanship in that committee. Absolutely. And she worked quite well with the former Senate Ag, Ag Committee chairman, now retired, Pat Roberts. So I think her history shows that at least at a leadership level, she, she she's a good partner. All right. What do you expect from this confirmation hearing Tuesday for Tom Vilsack, Jim? I mean, obviously, we're going to have hours of speechifying, but after that's done, it's pretty much drink the coffee, eat the donuts and take a vote and head home, isn't it? Well, yes, the, the sensitive issues will go on his prior uh, experience in dealing with some, uh, you know, black American uh, issues. Uh, right. If you're against him, you usually bring that up. I, I think that he'll have adequate responses, but that's one area. Two is, uh, yeah, he will be asked to sound out on climate uh, change and what his role uh, will be that, uh, you know, will be in that, you know, relative to his, uh, uh, you know, former position. Yeah, and that is going to be the, the key thing to watch, I think, in this uh, confirmation hearing, is it's going to be our first chance to hear directly from Tom Vilsack how he sees his role in this administration that is so focused on climate change. Yes, and I hope, I doubt, but I hope a lawmaker asks him, relative to the significant need in rural America for you know broadband, fast broadband, uh, internet band, uh, not just the funding, but I hope states track all those billions of dollars that are going to states to see if they're act actually being spent for rural broadband. Uh, in fact, I've queried a number of lawmakers about this topic, so uh, that may come up next Tuesday. Yeah, and that, just as an aside, I mean, that's that's an issue we're seeing firsthand as I deal with some colleagues as we've, you know, over this last year gone virtual. And we have colleagues who are in very rural areas because we are, you know, uh, several of us, not me, but several of the people on the Farm Journal staff are farmers in addition to being uh, writers or whatever for Farm Journal. And, you know, they either can't get Internet at all or if they can get it, it's like $250 a month, which is just outrageous so yeah um, it, it is remarkable with the millions and billions that have been spent on rural broadband that we're still in this situation yes and that's why i say track the money i want to see how those states i know it went awry uh under both the uh, obama and and uh, uh, and to a degree the trump administration i i would want to see where every dollar went in the states for all that all that money john Indeed, indeed. Uh, let's go through some of the other priorities uh, for Debbie Stabenow, the uh, chair of the Senate Ag Committee. Um, after the confirmation of Tom Vilsack, she said next up for her is addressing the COVID crisis and in particular the uh, hunger problems that have been brought out and made worse because of the COVID situation. Uh, she wants to see expansion of SNAP eligibility and expansion of other programs that provide hunger relief across America. Yeah, and she usually goes 
on the timing, like that, uh, you know, food box program. She wants to look at the timing of, of when those boxes go out. Uh, bottom line on not just Stabenow, but any Democrat is they're going to have a significant increase in funding for food and nutrition programs, SNAP or food stamps for sure. There's not a dollar they don't want to spend on that. Yeah, and that's, uh, I know there's often seen as, as kind of a, a pull back and forth uh, between SNAP and uh, the, the farm portion of the farm bill. But as we've seen in particular with this food box program, there can be a strong benefit to production agriculture in some of these nutrition programs if they are buying commodities uh, for to provide food assistance for others while at the same time uh, providing financial assistance to our farmers. Absolutely. Just ask the dairy industry how significant yeah. that food box program. And now that we have one of his 26, I think, executive orders, uh, you know, this week, you know, mean, you know, you know, I believe we're up to 27 now, yeah. 27, you know, meaning mm -hmm. President Biden. One of those is by American and that gets into the food, uh, you know, purchases by the uh, American government. And I was surprised how much non-U.S. food is actually bought, John. Yeah, it was too, especially in the uh, school lunch program. That, yes, that absolutely. Is pretty remarkable. Yes. Um, after the hunger priorities and COVID priorities, obviously priority across government and a priority expressed by uh, Senator Stabenow is addressing climate and uh, carbon capture. Um, and, and I'm gonna let you expand on this because you've got some, some definite thoughts uh, on this. She talked a lot about um, making it work for farmers, making it uh, providing financial incentives for farmers, but you're also concerned about where she's headed with possible regulation and requirements on this. Well, she said that uh, I thought the most significant thing in her press conference was using climate change funding and USDA CCC Charter Act. She thought that uh, that it would be eligible. But then the key was that's a process to get a better, bigger budget baseline for the next farm bill. And that's when bells went off for me. That's going to be a way that Stabenow and other farm state lawmakers will attempt to get a bigger farm bill budget baseline whenever it is written, uh, John, because uh, the around $50 billion that has been paid uh, out relative to trade mitigation and CFAPs uh, are not in the budget baseline. Right. So that's a big opening. So I think that was key number one. And and also, uh, she she has a bill uh, with, uh, you know, uh, Republican Braun from Indiana that will probably be the beginning point for at least her push for, uh, you know, climate change. And she'll emphasize the conservation stewardship program. So, yeah, she made clear, other than COVID and food and nutrition, as you said, climate change is going to be a very important part of her agenda. Yeah, and, and I asked her specifically about whether she thought USDA already had authority to use CCC money uh, to accomplish the goals that she has. And she said, yes, she thinks they do. They are reviewing it further, um, but she thinks that author authorization is there. Um, and that can mean a couple of things. One, they've they've got plans to do things in a way that falls under existing programs that would already fall under CCC, or they think that CCC is wide open to use for climate issues. Also, yeah, that is one avenue. The other one would be 
in, in coming legislation, uh, perhaps in budget reconciliation where it only needs a majority vote, you can put specific language in there authorizing uh, such funding out of out of USDA right. CCC Charter Act. So I would look, you know, to that. But, but, but she indicated she didn't need that. To get but done what she wants to get done, yeah. It's it's always, and I would agree that they'll they'll just tell the lawyers. I've said this before. Law, you know, I learned a long time ago at USDA where the secretary says this is the way we want the law to go, and the lawyers, you know, you know, pour forth, and that's more fact than fiction. Uh, but still, I think uh, to codify it is still always the better approach, John, because then you don't You're have right. to get a challenge on that. The second one, if that were to occur, I can just hear, they won't say publicly, but the commodity groups and the farm groups are going to say, oh, you know, we want, we don't want that CCC Charter Act to go away from what it's really uh, doing now with more farm program payments, uh, CSP, uh, you know, a conservation reserve program, etc. So that may give some impetus, John, to increasing the current $30 billion maximum for CCC borrowing authority. So this is tying into a number of related issues. Well, and it, it, um, and we're going to get into this more the next because her, her last item, uh, well, she had a, a couple of the smaller things, but the, the other main item was getting ready for the 2023 farm bill or whatever year it ends up being. Yes. Um, and, and talking about getting away from these ad hoc payments. But I think this is an illustration that the Democrats have seen what the Trump administration did with CCC and use it as kind of that open pig, piggy bank. And, and, you know, they see an opportunity here with climate to do kind of the same thing. Absolutely. And remember, her, her bill is called the Growing Climate Solutions Act. So I would Google that to see some of the specifics. And the companion bill in the House was uh, introduced by Spanberger from Virginia and Don Bacon from, uh, from uh, Nebraska. Uh, but this is going to be the avenue at which they get that additional, you know, funding. And it's needed in the next Farm Bill. Also recall that former House Ag Committee Chairman Colin Peterson, who lost his race, uh, said that in the next go-around, he wanted to look into the CCC Charter Act and also find a way that they could handle uh, some disasters in agriculture without going back to ad hoc programs all the time. I think this follows up on that, John. Yeah, indeed. Well, and that leads into what uh, what Debbie Stepanow said about um, the 2023 Farm Bill. They're going to start, as they always do, listening sessions and start some of the background work getting ready for that Farm Bill. But again, she was very animated when she talked about uh, her priorities for the Farm Bill. And, and priority number one was to get away from the ad hoc payments and, and get this farmer safety net um, and, and risk management in place so that ad hoc payments weren't needed. Well, isn't that where we were supposed to be with the current farm bill? Uh, yes, but I said at the time it, it would not be successful relative right. to that, and it wasn't, John. So I think she's right, and I think Colin was right. It's about time to really look into 
that safety net. There's just too many holes in it. Now it can't, it you can't forecast the black swan of COVID-19. I understand that, but it does need to be improved. But you, you typically, usually, uh, I'm not saying just money solves everything. In fact, a lot of times it hurts, but they do need additional funding. So that's why all these things tie together. But I think she's right to open up uh, the, the discussion. I don't see much activity and for the new farm bill this year. They'll have regional or state hearings and things like that. Also, there should be some oversight hearings. We didn't have many oversight hearings relative yeah. to the 2018 Farm Bill, and that's where some of the uh, uh, negatives or exposures to a lack of an effective safety net could come out if we really, truly have uh, oversight hearings. Well, let's face it, with the Farm Bill in 2023, we aren't going to have really serious discussions about it until we clear the 2022 election and we know where the power structure in, in Congress lays after that 2022 election. Absolutely, because we could have a flip in the House from Democrats to Republicans, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. But you're, you're spot on. Don't, don't get too serious you know, this early. All right, well, let's move on to these big China buys this week. And uh, Joe checking in, asking, do we have enough grain supply to supply these big sales? At what point are we oversold? Um, well, we're, we're not oversold yet. China keeps buying. And, of course, that means that uh, beans in particular are bidding for acres in 2021. And we have the X factor of what South America does um, in the offseason. But in the meantime, China is is big in the market, and that's been providing a nice boost to the market. Oh, absolutely. Here's my you know perspective on that question. Export U.S. exporters, I've been told, are not offering old crop soybeans for exports. And you notice that the the daily sale for soybeans today was for new crop. So we're down to that rust level relative to carryover for soybeans. As for corn. The announcement that we had today was the largest daily U.S. corn sale to China and the second largest daily corn sale ever, the biggest one being the former USSR at a little over 3.7 million tons January the 9th, 1991, John. So the, these are, uh, these are uh, effective sales uh, now that are adding up. And the pickle here is that we're almost at the level just on corn sales this week to China that USDA's World Board initially had that China was going to import from all origins in 2020-21 in to show you wow. how, how far they missed that, uh, you know, months ago. And oh, wow. it sets up in the next WASD report, the S&D report from USDA. Last month, they cut U.S. corn exports. Now, are they going to have to increase Corn exports, another potentially embarrassing move on the part of USDA. So let's hope as a nation we never have to throttle back exports like Ukraine and Russia and things like that because we, you know, we, we have been a reliable supplier. So let the debate on price rises begin. Indeed. And on that supply side, we have seen uh, crushers trying to buy up as much as they can because they're not sure and as far out in the future as they can because they're not sure what that availability is going to be. So there, there is con real concern out there in, in the marketplace. Uh, but, Jim, what obviously there is a political 
angle to this. China by announcing very big purchases and a lot of them in the initial days of a new presidential administration. What signal are they trying to send? Well, you know, on, based on my emails, of which I, it was some very interesting emails of veteran contacts, some of them told me that these sales were made quite some time ago and just were not announced. I, I don't know the really? truth. Yes, I mean, I got some of that from sources. Other traders said, you know, you look at the action last Friday and that's when you saw that dramatic run up in corn prices and you saw basis tightening, etc. So I, the, I had a disagreement on that in the trade, but it's interesting nonetheless. Before I forget, I wanted to also bring in Bloomberg reported that the Biden administration uh, is going to put phase one under review as well relative to the U.S.-China trade agreement. But I didn't think that was blockbuster news because really Biden has indicated from day one that he wants a, a multi-month review of Trump's trade policy. So, But they did announce yeah, that at the White House press conference today. Yeah, I don't think anybody's surprised by that. I mean, they've no. been telegraphing that they want to do that yes. uh, even, um, you know, the right after the election. And before we forget, China bought roughly 200 million gallons of U.S. ethanol for delivery the first half of this year, ADM announced. And that eclipsed the prior record of just a little over 198 million gallons in 2016. So we've got some momentum in this corn and, and ethanol uh, uh, industry. And you saw that uh, ethanol prices have now rebounded, John, past the pre-COVID levels. So does the ethanol industry need aid right now? That's a that's a question to be asked. <laughs> well, it Rin, depends on how high corn goes. Yes, and RIN prices are going higher because the RIN yeah. bank surplus, I've been told, has narrowed and because of those favorable court rulings, along with the realization by refiners that they're not likely to see those SRE waivers anytime soon. And that announcement by ADM in their earnings call was important because those ethanol sales can go under the radar because they aren't reported by USDA uh, like the corn and soybean sales are. So it's it's easy for them to be lost in this. But that yes. that is a very significant impact on the corn market uh, with that big sale of ethanol to China. There's your signal that China needs the corn. There's been a, a, a scattered shot reports from usually pretty reliable sources, John, uh, not just in this country, that China is experiencing some food scarcities. And mm. uh, that's something to at least monitor. And are they building up their stocks from a, probably from a geopolitical perspective? And as I raised on AgriTalk this morning, I don't call it negative news at all, but look at the significance of China's purchases of U.S. farm products. Uh, we're putting a lot of eggs in one basket, and relative to uh, the future U.S.-China uh, relations, uh, that's a potential wild card. And the r biggest reason I know why we have to have new and growing market access and new trade agreements, John, we're, we're getting top-heavy on China. Yeah, like uh, TPP in yes. particular. Um, yes. But it, isn't the big signal here that China's trying to say to the new administration, hey, we want to get back to the negotiating table? Oh, there's no doubt. Yes. And when you heard uh, their President Xi Jinping uh, earlier this week, he did the carrot and the stick. 
you know, that uh, the carrot was, let's talk. Uh, we've got, we can help each other on uh, climate change and, uh, and, and food, food areas uh, and COVID uh, vaccines, et cetera. But they were more than concerned of the U.S. overtures toward Taiwan. So there's your carrot and stick, uh, and it could go either way. Uh, Xi and China are flexing their muscles. And so yeah. that's always has to be on the front burner that this relationship could really be topsy-turvy in the months ahead. All right, let's uh, shift gears again and talk biofuels because there's a lot to talk about here. We got this uh, a question from Kirby. How big a role will biofuels play into the climate change policy goals for Senate and House Ag Committee leadership? Um, I think the bigger question is how do they play into the policy roles being lined out by uh, the Biden administration this week? And that is a point of contention at the moment between the biofuel industry and the big oil industry. Um we have talked for some time here, Jim, about the need for biofuels and oil to come together and make a case that, um, again, I think you and I agree that that a switch to electric vehicles is somewhat inevitable at this point, but it is going to take some time and that there is a significant role to be played by the internal combustion engine and in particular biofuels to bridge that gap and um, reduce carbon emissions by using in particular ethanol. Um, but that's gonna require the oil industry and the ethanol industry to work together, which is something they have not been able to do up to this point. So, uh, well, draw the picture for us of what's happening this week in this call from the biofuels industry and the story from Reuters. It's really kind of strange what's, yes. what's been going on. Well, Reuters initially reported that the oil industry has made overtures, they said, to the corn and biofuel industry to enlist their help in, in helping to fight the push for electric vehicles. That's interesting. Now, the American Fuel and Petrochemical Manufacturers Association uh, did confirm that they've been reaching out to state and national reps in the corn and biofuel industry, and there's apparently a requested meeting sometime in February, according to uh, Reuters. Now, the Renewable Fuels Association president, Jeff uh, Cooper, said the group had been invited to the February meeting, but uh, had not yet decided on their participation. And I think his quote is key. He said, we weren't born yesterday and we're not going to let the oil industry play us like a fiddle. They have a long history of pushing surrogates and proxies to the microphone to do their dirty work and we're not interested in that. Uh, isn't that interesting? I think that last part is the key in that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because because the end goal of, of the two industries is the same, but the approach is vastly different. I mean, you've heard the biofuels industry talk, and Jeff Cooper in particular, and Emily Score at Growth Energy, saying, offering up solutions here and saying, hey, you know, we've got a way to instantly lower carbon emissions if we if we would embrace corn-based ethanol uh, immediately, um, go to an E15 blend, you're, you're going to immediately see a significant drop in, in carbon emissions from that. Whereas the oil industry's take is we need the biofuels industry to tell the Biden administration to back off this EV mandate um, and and um, back off the, uh, the, the ban on drilling in uh, federal lands. 
Um, and I don't think that's a position that the biofuel industry wants to be in. Yeah, well, I don't see Biden or the Democrats backing off that. And of course, no. now Biden also wants to go, uh, needs congressional support on this one, which will be hard to eliminate the subsidies to the uh, oil industry. If that's not a wild card issue, I don't see it happening. But just well, it's trust- something that the biofuel industry has pushed for. A- absolutely. But then, you know, once they do that, then you look at other subsidies and they have mm-hmm. big subsidies as well. What the ethanol and biofuels industry has going for them at the perfect time now you had a report come out from harvard or an affiliated group with harvard uh, the environmental health and engineering incorporated group that shows ethanol greenhouse gas emissions john are 46 percent lower than gasoline EPA is currently using the assumption that that's just 20% so this upstated study i think is going to be a key tool that the biofuel industry can use as they seek to expand the use of the fuel, especially linked into the climate uh, change debate uh, and and reduced miles driven by consumers. So there's your link right there that the biofuels industry can go with and why the oil industry better lock onto this because they're gonna need the biofuel industry. Yeah, for either of them to survive, they're going to need each other to do yes. this. And as an illustration of that, we saw General Motors this week announce that they plan to go to all electric vehicle production by, what, 2035? Yes, and they're putting $27 billion uh, to that uh, goal. Now, I know a number of people have said, oh, they've missed, uh, they've said that before, things like that, but they're putting a lot of money involved here. And then you had Biden come out this week and say he wants to uh, move all electric federal fleets uh, into the EV uh, area. And, and that's, that's significant because there's uh, around 645,000 vehicles, John, in the federal fleet. Wow. And just, uh, just shy of 40, uh, you know, 4,800 are now electric. So uh, this, the, the, all this is adding up, John. It's just, and the investment community is looking at this, and they're going to add more investment money to the continued uh, growth in the uh, electric vehicles, battery research and technology, etc. Again, it's not a question of if EVs are going to take over; it's when and to what degree. Yeah, and what I think is different about this announcement by General Motors is uh, they've already been making structural changes within the company to push in that direction. It's it's not just that they're announcing this, but they're actually changing the structure of the company um, in an effort to uh, to accomplish that goal of all EVs by Agreed. 2035. Agree. All right, let's move on to the uh, next issue, and that is South Africa. Um, I, I've got to admit, Jim, when I heard that the uh, that the U.S. was going to put a travel ban on travelers from South Africa coming into the United States, I did not immediately think of any impact on agriculture. I quickly learned otherwise. Yeah. Um, there are some 5,000 H-2A workers in agriculture from South Africa, and uh, including a number here in the state of Indiana. Uh, I wasn't aware it was that much of an influence, um, and it very quickly was addressed by the State Department. Today, they issued an exemption for those H-2A workers from South Africa. Yeah, and who says government can't act fast? I mean, they, they needed that because of the coming ban, 
you know. Yeah. So, and the exemption, John, also applies to H-2B visa holders who work in the food supply chain. And I'm trying to get a handle on that one as well. I think, it, it, as you said, on H-2A, it's at least 5,000, if not uh, larger. And I'm trying to get a handle on the, those H-2B you know, visa holders. But uh, it, it was a good, fast action because of the, uh, of the importance of the South African workers in the ag sector. Now, obviously, that needs to be followed up with uh, some pretty serious screening of those workers coming yes. in because of that variant strain in South Africa. But, yes. uh, you know, hats off to the State Department for acting quickly on that and, and um, getting that through. Because I know there were growers that were very concerned about getting a 2021 crop in without those workers that they uh, had set up to come and, and assist. So good news there. Um, now some not so good news, possibly. You reported in your newsletter this morning, and again, I would encourage people to sign up for that newsletter because you're going to get a leg up uh, every morning um, and, and go to profarmer.com to uh, get the details on that. But Jim, um, there may be some significant tax changes coming, particularly in uh, relationship to capital gains and specifically capital gains um, when assets roll over because of the member of a uh, the death of a member of the family. Yes, uh, we we hit that hard in 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 my copy, you know, policy updates on profarmer.com and in the newsletter uh, we did put out the facts that Biden has consistently said that he wants to increase some individual income taxes, but raise the estate taxes really exponentially by cutting mm -hmm. the federal exemption in half, eliminating the step up in basis rules and increase the taxation rate of capital gains. But now, you know, his plan would uh, raise the long-term cap gains tax, John, to 39.6% for some and that would make selling property much more expensive for many landholders. And now, bottom line on this, is it going to go? Some of it will. Uh, corporate taxes are going to be increased. I don't think as much as Biden and some Democrats want, but I think they're going to be increased. Capital gains taxes are going to be increased, I think, but not nearly as much. This estate tax thing, I don't think they're going to uh, drop them by uh, half, but it's going to be looked at. And there's going to be pushback, not just from Republicans, but a number of some key Democrats. And this is not going to show up in a proposal yet relative to the budget reconciliation that only takes a majority vote rather than the 60 needed. Uh, but it's going to come up later this year and with the second budget reconciliation. So we have time to research this, John, and different groups have time to lobby their individual uh, sectors, agriculture, the other business community, etc. But the die is cast here. Uh, Democrats are going to need more funding in order to offset some, uh, clearly not all, of their huge increase in spending in the years ahead. Yeah, and I, in years past, there's been all kinds of uh, attention on the estate tax or as, as group farm groups like to call it, the death tax. But really, in this round that you're talking about, the, the most dangerous would be the loss of step-up basis, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the one where uh, now that we have time to educate I think that they'll uh, show that that thing better be treated very gingerly because not just for agriculture, but the in total investment and financial community. If you want to tip yourself into a recession, you know, this is the way to do it, John. 
Well, and, uh, you, you know, yeah, there, there's all kinds of implications for, for uh, stocks and other items. But in our area, in our area of expertise, it really makes it difficult or would make it very difficult to pass on a family operation, a family business, uh, whether it's a family farm or a small business or whatever it is. If you lose that step up in basis um, and have those other tax provisions go into place, it would make it very, very difficult to pass on a small business. Absolutely. Regretfully, in the months ahead, I got to write a lot about tax policy. <laughs> so it, it always gives me headaches, but I've ordered a couple new bottles of wine. So get oh, ready. there you go. Well, maybe <laughs> maybe uh, as this develops, we'll invite Paul Neifer to join us. On one oh, of these we should. Yes, we'll through, have, yeah. we will have him on. We only might. We will. We will. That's Paul Neifer from uh, Clifton Larson Allen. Yes. Clifton Larson Allen, who is our tax uh, expert for AgWeb. We'll definitely have him on as we get more details on this. He can provide a lot more clarity for us. Um, I don't even want to say this word, but Jim, WOTUS is coming back. Really? Well, they're going to try. Biden said he wants to return to the WOTUS rule. Now, it, it's an issue that just doesn't go away. And this is why, John, you go with codifying a rule yeah. rather than announcing it administratively. Uh, well, you know, I mean, but but to be honest, don't we have to? Doesn't this administration have to deal with the WOTUS rule because of that court case from the Obama era that's still hanging out there? I mean, there needs to be a a rule, a final rule put in place that uh, that addresses that definition of waters of the U.S. Yes, and it's really going to take that. It's really going to take the Supreme Court to clarify, you know that and uh, others tell me it may take an act of congress to resolve the issue you're not going to get anything from congress on this issue it's just too controversial you know so i think the supreme court's going to have to act again on this one clarify it oh, well, well yeah, yeah. And, and clarify is the word because that was the biggest issue in agriculture with the obama era wotus rule is that there was no clarity in it um a a landowner could not go out, look at the rule, look at his land and know whether or not he was under the regulation of the, the Clean Water Act because WOTUS was so vague. Um, so do you think the Biden administration has learned the lesson from where the Obama administration was? Or are we going to see that that level of confusion again for agriculture? Well, I hope once they have time, because, you know, they're at a they're at a pell-mell pace on these executive orders. I think as the weeks go on here, John, that they'll have meetings on this and they'll see the the heirs of the past. I, I think the Biden team will ask the courts to put WOTUS litigation on hold uh, to give EPA and the uh, what Army Corps. Uh, time to decide if and how to rewrite that Trump administration 2020 rule, lifting those federal protections for many small waterways nationwide. So we need to see their next step of really what they want to do. Is it the total return to WOTUS? I certainly hope not, uh, because that, that would mean that they didn't learn the lessons uh, of the past. And so we'll see. Well, let's hope that John Doggett and Ray Starling and the rest of them are right about the relationship agriculture has had with Michael Regan, the incoming EPA administrator, and hopefully his ears are still open to those concerns of agriculture and, and those get addressed as, as WOTUS gets revisited. Absolutely. Um, all right, the time we've got left, let's hit on uh, COVID aid. 
the Democrats are still pushing for that package that includes an additional uh, the $1,400 payments, additional money for states and municipalities. Um, where do we stand with this? I know they've talked about maybe stripping some things from it to try to get it passed. They're also talking about just shoving it through on budget reconciliation. Where do we end up? Well, this is a, another interesting run, one with all sorts of angles. One is that the White House indicated this week it doesn't want to strip anything from the proposed uh, $1.9 trillion package. The Democrats on the Hill certainly don't want that, although Republicans are saying, look, if this is really needed, let's just pull out the COVID aid-related features, including the uh, cash payments. I mean, we, we may want to target them better and let's come at it. That uh, They're not getting a consensus on that. You also have what appears to me a big difference between congressional Democrats and President Biden on this one. Biden keeps saying that he wants a bipartisan, bipartisan approach uh, to this issue. He and his staff have talked to a number of moderate Republicans, but I don't think they've gone very far because they're hearing the same thing I just told you, that the Republicans want a target approach and they don't think a $15 minimum wage is even part, should be part of any budget right. reconciliation process. They think that there are some problems there. And of course, the $350 billion that Biden and the Democrats want uh, for aid to, uh, you know, state and local, you know, governments. So uh, we're going to see next week is when they're, I think, going to unveil the, the budget resolution, which is step one, watch that in the House and Senate, uh, that's step one toward the process of getting the first of several budget reconciliations that they may eventually tie this uh, COVID aid package to. And if it goes through budget reconciliation, John, we're really talking March as far as the end zone on this one. Uh, that That's interesting. Uh, um, it'd be interesting to track it and see uh, what it does. And again, a reminder that if it, they do go the budget reconciliation route, the reason they do that is they just need a simple majority in the Senate, not the 60 votes to get cloture to get it yes. to the floor. So yes. it'll be interesting to see if, if they are able to find those additional 10 votes in the Senate to have a bipartisan bill. But as it looks right now with the structure of the bill, as you said, it doesn't look likely that the, that they will find those 10 votes in the Senate to get that done. And see, and this is giving fodder to some of the Democrats who say, see there, that the, the Republicans are going to be obstructionist. We need to get away. We need to get rid of the filibuster. So th this, that's another angle in this. Yeah, does that happen, though? I mean, really, you, you've seen Senator Manchin already say he is absolutely dead set against getting rid of the filibuster. So you, that would likely do many effort to do that. So is, is there any real likelihood that the Democrats could get rid of the filibuster in the well, Senate? Well, you can always change, but uh, Manchin is just not the only Democrat saying that uh, he doesn't yeah. want to end the filibuster. Uh, Siemens, or the senator of the, uh, you know, from uh, Arizona, has indicated, and I think a number of others. So I don't think they have the votes to do away with the filibuster. All right. And again, um, you know, I know I know a lot of folks see the filibuster as as obstructionist, um, but I think you and I I know I would argue and I think you agree it is a moderating factor in Congress that that can slow things down and force compromise, which you and I often see as a good thing, right? Yes. I'm not sure what you're throwing at me there. My but... cat has joined us, so. Oh, okay. <laughs> throwing cats at me. I see. <laughs> 
So, yeah, but this is what to watch out. I do not see the filibuster ending because Democrat, the seasoned Democrats know that uh, the control could eventually, will eventually pass uh, again to uh, the uh, you know Republicans, and they don't know what they're going to get relative to uh, um, you know legislation from the uh, on, on the Republican side and a Republican White House. All right, and the cast presence is, reminds me—I haven't mentioned yet uh, the reminder for folks who are listening to this podcast and not watching—you can watch and see Jim's <laughs> cat. If you join us at 2 p.m. Eastern time on Fridays, we uh, stream this live as we record it on the AgriTalk Facebook page and uh, give you a chance to make comments and ask questions as as we do so. So if you are listening to the podcast, join us for the live broadcast next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern on the AgriTalk Facebook page. All right, Jim, let's wrap up with uh, some news you have on making ARC and PLC selections for the 2021 crop year. Yeah, the safety net options for 2021 crops. I had a number of emails from farmers and and other analysts that said, you know, boy, you ought to caution uh, farmers that to make sure they know they have options uh, because uh, apparently uh, some county offices have automatically put ARC in for a farmer's choice. I'm not quite sure that's accurate, but that's what I've been told. Now, farmers have until uh, March 15th to finalize their decision between agris coverage, ARC, and price loss coverage, you know, PLC for 2021 20, uh, crops. But that's not the only thing that a farmer should option out. I've been told they should also consider what's called the supplemental coverage option, or SCO, and the new enhanced coverage option, ECO, via the crop insurance when making their safety net decisions. And I think that's very solid advice. Now, SCO may not work in uh, the main Corn Belt states, but in areas like uh, like Dakota, I've been told it'll pencil out in some hmm. cases. And so look at these programs and go to either Texas A&M or the University of Illinois decision uh, tables and, th- and plug your data in because th- that'll, you know, that'll help you decide which program option that you should choose. All right. So go check those out. All right, Jim, uh, let's talk about what we're watching for Signal next week. I know for me, the number one thing is watching that uh, Tom Vilsack confirmation hearing to see what he has to say about climate change. Where are you watching uh, for Signal next week? Well, initially, I'm watching the weather because I'm taking my first flight, a little nervous, uh, from here to St. Louis. And then I've got to get in a car and go to the Ozarks for a pork industry meeting. I, I really can't wait to, to be live in a meeting, but I'm gonna have to be very careful. Uh, but other than that, uh, yes, I, I, I will watch the Vilsack hearing, watching his tone and, and on the key subjects on race relations, uh, the uh, farmer safety net, COVID aid, maybe trade policy, and above all, his role in the coming climate change debate, John. All right, great. Well, I'm John Harris. That's Jim Weesmeyer. What's the cat's name? Muffin. She's a ragamuffin, a cross between a Persian cat and a ragdoll. And she's uh. alpha personified. She's my first female cat. And I shouldn't say this too loud, but I think females are smarter. <laughs> I've got a wife who wouldn't disagree with you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So join join me, John Harris, Jim Weesmeyer, and Muffin next Friday, 2 o'clock Eastern on the AgriTalk Facebook page. That's a wrap for this week's edition of DC Signal to Noise.